HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Learn more about PASA's 2021 virtual conference at pasafarming.org slash conference. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. About 8 billion pounds of food is discarded in the U.S. each year, including 20 million tons of produce that never leave the farm, simply because they're not pretty enough for grocery store shelves or restaurant dishes. One new startup in particular, Matriarch Foods, is working to address that portion of the waste stream by upcycling these vegetables into food products. Matriarch was founded in 2018 by Anna Hammond, who's joining me on the line this evening to tell us more about the company, including how she got its her start, its social and environmental impact, and her future plans for the business. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, Jenna. Glad to be here. Okay, so I provided the briefest of descriptions about the company. Um, can you give us uh, more of a sense of, you know, more of an overview and what product problems you're working to solve and how? Yeah, so before I launched Matriarch, I uh, built a healthy eating program for youth and families living in public housing in New York City uh, and in upstate New York and Columbia County as the executive director for the Sylvia Center. And part of that program involved brokering relationships between firms upstate uh, and the community centers to get healthier food into into our classes. And so I was extremely exposed to uh, not only the dearth of healthy food available um, to people who need it most, but also this incredible excess uh, of farm produce, both you know from natural reasons of of basic farm production as well as you know off spec and surplus uh, that is generated on farms and so in order to set, solve that i just thought we got to do something about food waste and hunger and put those two things together to launch matriarch um, so we're basically have two main value propositions. Uh, one is to stop food from being wasted, and the other is to get healthy food uh, to young people and elders in our society who don't have access necessarily. 
And can you give us a, si- a size of the problem in terms of maybe volume? Like what is the overall vegetable supply being sent to landfill um, in the U.S. today? And how big, we know food insecurity rates have spiked recently, but can you kind of help anchor the, the size of the problem for us? Yeah, well, it's the the size the size is massive. Um, you know, food waste dramatically increases global warming, uh, and you know, and um, sorry, uh, you know, ten million tons of perfectly usable vegetables never make it to market, and two million tons of perfectly usable vegetable remnants go to landfill. Um, at the same time, there are 13 million children in the United States who are food insecure and 117 million people uh, who have a diet-related illness. So the, the, the issues of health and the environment are both you know, at a crisis point. And what products do you currently have on the market? Are, are they on the market now or is this like, in, are they all in development? Yeah, no, we actually, we launched our first, our first uh, commercial product last year um, in March of 2020, just as the pandemic was hitting. Uh, and I suppose an important piece, you know, another important piece of our business is that they are, our real focus is food service. So schools, hospitals, food banks, and other places where communities are fed on a large scale every day. Um, we did not launch out as a CPG, you know, retail product initially. Actually, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later in the show. Um, but we, we, our, our first product on, on the market is a vegetable broth concentrate, uh, and it's a it's a concentrate that's made with vegetable remnants. Um, and we have two two sizes. One is a food service carton that makes about three gallons of uh, healthy broth, and the other is a new retail size that makes about three quarts. Uh, and then we have three other products in, currently in development and a pilot program with a national vegetable company in the works as well. Wow. Okay. So, so a lot, lot going on in a very short period of time. <laughs> a lot going on, just, just like every startup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, um, and why food service? Well, you know, we really, I mean, I just wanted to be able to divert as much waste as possible, as quickly as possible, and also to get healthy food to as many people as possible, also as quickly as possible. And, you know, in food service, uh, you know, you can have a school that's serving 3,000 meals a day or, you know, a university that's serving you know, 30,000 meals a day or hospital, you know, a small hospital might be doing, you know, five to 600, depending. So sales are in pallets as opposed to individual cartons or cases. And of course, that means that, you know, the production, uh, the diversion of waste from landfill, you know, matches those numbers as well. So where a case of our product diverts 10 pounds of vegetables from landfill, a pallet diverts 1,500 pounds. So it was really, you know, it was really a scale decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because, you know, food service is just a place where 50% of meals in this country are eaten by a largely captive audience and, you know, and with budgets often that are very tight. And so we felt that if we could crack that, you know, crack that one uh, at scale, we really could make an enormous impact, not only on the environment, but on people's health. 
And that's turned out to be, you know, a, a, a very good and winning decision that we made early on. So when you say food service, this is sometimes I think for food service, I think restaurants. Yes. I mean, restaurants are part of food service for sure. Um, our focus is institutional food service um, okay. right now. Yeah. Got it. So, you know, when in and captive audience, hospitals, schools, correctional facilities, those kinds yeah. of things. Elder care. Yeah. Elder care. Yeah. I'm wondering how tricky the business model is with regard to your profit margins, since you're targeting institutional foods as one sales channel where I imagine there's a lot of pressure to keep your prices incredibly low. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, our, our margins are actually pretty good. And part of that is the scale at which we were able to, to really launch out with, which is somewhat unusual, um, you know, for, for a beginning business. Uh, and, you know, but but also, you know, the the bigger <laughs> the bigger the accounts, the more you're selling at once. You know, the better the possibility for a viable business proposition. Um, so if you're, you know, if you're starting out just se- selling, you know, 30, 30 cases here and there, it's much harder to kind of get to profitability than if you're selling, you know, ten thousand cases um, at a shot. So we you know, there's that, but also, you know, our goal here always is to be incredibly affordable product and we have blended margins. So we have certain accounts, you know, retail accounts now that we didn't expect to go in that direction, but that was a pivot uh, during COVID, um, which allow us to sell uh, to food banks at a lower cost. Wonderful. That was my, that was one of my next questions. So you're, you're already on top of it. Okay. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about COVID for a minute. Um, (laughs) It's so fun. It's just the best. Um, How, how did this impact your business? I mean, you know, I imagine it was a huge hit in terms of, you know, from like an institutional food service perspective, but you know, restaurants are different than like hospitals or food banks where the need need has to be as high as ever right now, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, COVID decimated food service, you know, as we all know, and the restaurant industry. And we launched out in March of last year. So just as food service, sorry, just as COVID was was hitting and shutting everything down, um, not, you know, obviously not hospitals, but universities and, and colleges and that and schools. Uh, so, you know, we were just kind of getting up and running in that arena. And, you know, there was a there was a scary moment there, <laughs> for sure, because, you know, hospital accounts take a long time to get it's a long, I, mean, I can go into this, you know, into into, into mind numbing detail about distribution and contracting, um, and how hard it is for institutions in this country to, to get really good quality food because of all the restrictions around contracting and 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 how and how that has to happen um but we were still able to open some you know some serious accounts uh right out of the gate and sell out our first commercial production um but we also decided to do a slight pivot which was to create a retail size carton um, of the product that we could um, distribute to food banks and a lot of programs that were doing food boxes for frontline workers and that kind of thing. So, 
we were able to, you know, despite our original focus on kind of tr- traditional food service, make a pivot that was still completely in line with our, you know, with our value proposition. And also because, because of COVID, there was a lot of uh, food that was, um, you know, threatening to go to waste. So big institutional accounts that were canceled um, had, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of, of food that needed to find a home. Um, and so we also were, were uh, we applied and, and were granted um, a refed COVID solutions fund grant uh, to work together with Table to Table, which was a, is a, is a food, uh, food distribution um, organization in northern New Jersey, and Arrow Farms and Bad Apple Produce to um, aggregate uh, farm surplus and remnants that were, you know, in danger of going to waste, make a healthy stew that was then distributed uh, by table to table to their almost 500 partners. Um, so we were just able to kind of work with our, you know, what, what our value proposition is to begin with, which is environmental impact and feeding healthy food to people who need it, but just in a slightly different way uh, that really just expanded, expanded what we were doing as opposed to uh, contracting it. And I met, and that must've been an imperative partnership with table to table to actually help with the distribution because my understanding was it was like the the transportation aspect of getting product from the farm to even the processing facilities like there that was a big breakdown in the in the supply chain yeah absolutely i mean there's so many pieces to the food system that require incredible partnership and you know and, and one of the i don't know if we can call it an upside but maybe an upside is that i feel that because of last year there are just so many more people who understand um, more about how the food system works and how important partnerships are to making it work better. Um, so, you know, Table to Table took on the distribution piece and Bad Apple Produce was aggregating the surplus and we worked with a co-packer, uh, uh, Farm to Table in, in um, upstate New York, who happened to have time on the line because they had had contracts canceled and Aero Farms, you know, was was um, working with us to, to get us their, their second as well. So, you know, it was really kind of in real time, figuring out ways to solve problems that also made all of us better and and kind of created an opportunity for all of us to be thinking about creating better systems um, for the future as well. So is this a partnership that you, um, that will be continued beyond the grant because your grant was in July, right? And so yeah, the, gl- the grant was in July, and it was you know it was a discrete amount of money for a discrete amount of time. Um, but we are still in conversation with those partners about uh, doing another similar project as we move forward. And was labor a challenge during this time period? And even even throughout, you know, over the past year or so, have you had trouble either, you know, processing or or whatnot because of um, a shortage of, of workers? 
Or is it they're essential workers? I would. You know, they're essential workers. We work with an amazing co-packer, and they, you know, they had some struggles during during COVID. That some, you know, some had to do with you know with people in the factory who had to stay home because they'd been exposed, Um, and so you know they were only able to run you know one shift a day instead of three shifts. And the demand on co-packers during COVID has just been insane because of the higher demand for retail products Um, and the shift, you know, the shift from some big accounts to sort of more, you know, like online, et cetera. Um, But we, you know, we did not encounter labor issues. It was really more that, you know, that the co-packer we work with, you know, for example, was installing new equipment and so the people who do the installation couldn't get to the factory. And so there were, de- you know, there were kinds of those kinds of delays around, around production uh, that were a challenge. Um, yeah. And that's, you know, and that's something that, that really, you know, we need more of in this country is more nimble food processing because our food system, as you know, is really set up for big production and big production is not necessarily resilient. So, you know, one of the big takeaways really for anyone working kind of at a high level in the food system is how, you know, how are we going to create more resiliency in food production that's somewhere in between massive Mm -hmm. food production and local food production. So, you know, we're actually involved in a, in a couple of projects around, around thinking about and developing ideas around more nimble processing. And this is something that I've I've read a little bit about um, uh, that you're working on a pilot a pilot program, right? Mm-hmm. Can you, um, can you tell us more about this? And well, I mean, there's you know there are community kitchens that are you know are are supporting small local food businesses that might be selling to you know thirty or fifty gross local grocery stores. And then there are, you know, a few kind of mid mid to large size processing facilities that might do like, you know, tomato sauce and glass, um, you know, pickles, that kind of thing that have like a number of different accounts, you know, really sort of mid-sized co-packers. And then there are like massive co-packers that are doing, you know, 500,000, you know, cases a day of something or they're owned by large companies. Um, so, you know, large companies that own the means of production. So there really are not many facilities where a mid to large scale food business can start to produce commercially. So that's one issue. But another issue is that when you're working with byproducts or, um, you know, or the kind of, you know, inconsistency of farm surplus Again, large-scale food processing really requires incredible efficiencies and specs on things. So you can't just say, oh, you know, next week there's going to be a bumper crop of tomatoes. You know, can we get five days on the line? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we're working with an architecture group that, that we've been working with for about a year and a half, kind of ideating on what would it look like to create a facility that could be adaptable to upticks in different kinds of, um, different kinds of products and, and sort of address that in, in a kind of more resilient, efficient way. But again, you know, at larger scale. 
For your existing product, where are you sourcing the veggies from right now? Is it all from on-farm waste? Yeah, so we have we have a couple of ways that we are upcycling, and only one of them is you know is off spec and imperfects. Uh, and we work with a couple of aggregators uh, who are you know that get our supply now for us. When we first started out, we were aggregating all of our own supply, working with small farmers, picking things up, <laughs> taking them you know taking them to production, etc. Oh, yeah. Um, but you know they're also I mean every year we're in this, and we're only just three years into this business and only a year and a half since we have a product on the market, there are now bigger businesses that are focused on aggregating off spec and surplus, which is, you know, which is amazing. Like as, you know, as, as all of these businesses grow, you don't have to be doing every piece of it. And that is great for Mm -hmm. all kinds of obvious reasons. But one of the unique things about Matriarch is is that we um, we source remnants from fresh cut facilities. So there are fresh cut facilities in every big you know big urban area in this country that make you know all the carrot sticks and all the cut fruit that you see in delis and bodegas and grocery stores and you know the grocery stores that don't have their own commissary kitchens, for example. And every one of those facilities generates hundreds of thousands of usable vegetable and fruit remnants every week. So we create a relationship with a couple of large fresh cut facilities, you know, really uh, like, really like the old way, like calling them up, (laughs) finding the right person to talk to and saying, you know, what are you doing with your vegetable remnants? What are you doing with your fruit remnants? You know, how are you, you know, how much money a year are you spending? We have this idea to develop a product using these remnants. Would you be interested in talking with us? And I have to say the response has been incredible and, and, you know, I mean, I, I, yes, I am a very persuasive person, but it also is, <laughs> you're it like, also I'm really like, good at my you know, job. <laughs> I'm really good at my job. I am really good. At, I am really good at my job and people like yes. me too, but it makes sense because from a business point of view, these companies are hauling this, you know, this, this, these remnants to compost in some cases, sometimes for animal feed, sometimes for landfill, you know, no one wants to be saying landfill, but there's a lot going to landfill. Yeah, and that costs money. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're spending two to $500,000 a year carting 300,000 pounds of fruit and vegetable remnants every week out of their facilities. And so if they can make some money back on product that they've already bought and this is you know this this is vegetable product that has been grown harvested cleaned transported you know cleaned again lightly Mm. processed so the the system for it to be a a high quality um, product is there there have been numerous steps in, in, you know, in packaging it. Like that's actually one of the challenges. I mean, if you think that, you know, surplus vegetables are volatile, you know, think about a cut vegetable, like less, even less, less than a vegetable that's still whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have, you know, we have just been wor- able to work with a couple of amazing companies that really believe in what we're doing and 
simultaneously see the business benefit for them and also now realize that their customers want to be, you know, buying from companies that are doing good for the environment. So it's a kind of a triple win for them. You know, they get to make, you know, they get to make money back on product they've already bought. They get to, you know, uh, you know, have a great story to tell and, and they know they're doing something great for the environment. So, it's, it's been, you know, it's certainly been a process. I will, you know, I could tell you a many war stories about it, but, but mostly now, you know, we have this kind of incredible system and it's expanding. Um, and, and the vegetable concentrate is mostly remnants that we use. So this is like, you would make your broth in your own kitchen. I mean, I, you know, when I'm cook- cooking and most chefs do this you know you have the tops of your carrots or the bottoms of your carrots or the tops of your celery or you know your leftover parsley or whatever just stick it in a bag in the freezer and eventually when you have enough you make a broth Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing we're just doing it at kind of massive scale okay and so the and these vegetables are coming to you like you said a lot of them are have already been lightly processed so cleaned or peeled or whatever they're, they're, they're beautiful i mean they're super clean um, you know, there, you know, we have to, you know, the, for example, like onions, we have to freeze. Uh, and so, you know, there's a, ch- there's been a challenge we've had to overcome when you freeze onions, they, and you defrost them, then they leak a lot of water. So we've had to, you know, create systems around, you know, around every piece of it, there's been a system we've had to create to make it viable, including getting the paperwork for it to be an approved product. I mean, you know, there's like, there's a, there's another two hour discussion of, you know, of like paperwork and approvals and, you know, USDA and all the rest of it. Um, Don't don't worry. I have a question about it. So (laughs) so it's like, I know it's a two hour discussion, but I've got, I've got like the food, food, you know, being in the food, food business is not for the weak of heart and not for someone who doesn't, you know, some, whether maybe in a self, some kind of masochistic way, way, like, you know, enjoy getting every detail and every form and every, you know, piece (laughs) of everything done and ready. Right. Because, I mean, I guess I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking how this seems very difficult from a logistics standpoint because you have precise specs that go into each product, right? And you have to make sure Mm -hmm. that like they are, have certain levels of quality control and standardization for labels. And so how challenging is that when you don't necessarily, I mean, can you plan around what you will be getting because you're working? Yeah, we can. And, And, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, our, our food system, you know, yes, there's a lot that's broken, but there's also a lot that works. And, you know, something that has just, I think, so important for people to think about and understand is, you know, there are a lot of people in this country who work on getting our food to us and getting it to us safely. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of systems in place to make that happen. And, you know, and what, and there are a lot of challenges to get there, but, you can do it. Um, and so, you know, those, those systems exist, we have to adhere to those systems. So it was really, you know, the, the onus is on us to, you know, to make sure that every piece of this is, is works well, you know, so there's, there's checks and balances for every system. Um, and, you know, and our, and there are HACCP plans, there's, 
you know, everything has to be signed off on by someone at least once or twice. So yeah. it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty hard. <laughs> it, it's pretty hard to do and it's pretty hard to do it badly if you do, if you're going to do it. Well, so but what you are doing is like an entirely kind of new category of food product. And it's one that you actually helped shape the definition for, as my understanding is you have been an active participant in the um, Upcycled Food Association and the work that they've been doing. And we, mm -hmm. last season, I had an opportunity to sit down with um, Turner Wyatt, who helped f um, found that organization. But um, my question is, like first, could you actually tell us a little bit about your involvement with the organization? Yeah. And then, um, you know, I want to talk about maybe any food safety regulations that now that you have a new type of food product on the market, you've had to, you know, uh, uh, you've, you've come across and had to work through. Yeah, sure. Um, Turner and Ben just did an amazing job founding the Upcycled Food Association. And I met them through Jonathan Deutsch, who's the head of the Drexel Center for Food um, in Philadelphia, who's just an amazing person with an amazing lab and incredible expertise. And he introduced me to them when they were just sort of starting to think about putting together this group. And at the time, you know, there was kind of a core, there, was, there, was a, there were a couple of core businesses uh, Renewal Mill in California, Regrained also in California, uh, Netro out of Philadelphia, and Barnana, and Matriarch. And um, so, you know, he sort of talked to all of us, and I guess we gave him gave him our thoughts about an association. And also, I think we all saw that there was an enormous opportunity, and that uh, that the consumer was really starting to look at in the environment as an important piece of what they wanted in their food, you know, in terms of like a positive impact. And so I was not a founding board member. I was a founding member. There were nine of us and the board was, uh, the board was about four, four, four or five um, of that group I just mentioned. Uh, and they just worked insanely and tirelessly to, you know, put together this incredibly complex certification process um, that's just been approved. And this is a little over a year ago um, that they became a nonprofit and, a, and an association. Um, I was one of nine founding members, and they're now almost 150 members, I think. Wow. Um, and so there are that, you know, that many companies, mostly food, but not all. And this, and the certification has just been finalized. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I, I can't take credit for, I can only take credit for being, you know, being a sounding board and, and, a, and a cheerleader. I, I am now on the board. Um, but it really was that core group that, 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 you know, worked day and night to get this this long <laughs> this long approval process finished, um, and now you know in the next few months there will be a process where you can get a upcycled food a, uh, certification for your product, and there are all kinds of you know there are all kinds of uh, rules about what that looks like, whether it's an ingredient or the you know the percentage of upcycled ingredients that are in the product, etc. And is the idea, the core idea that you are taking something that would other be what, what otherwise be wasted and creating like a value add product? 
There yeah, has to be that. you know, the official the official definition for upcycled food is upcycled foods use ingredients that otherwise would not have gone to human consumption are procured and produced using verifiable supply chains and have a positive impact on the environment. So it is a, you know, it's a very clear definition um, of, of upcycled, you know, of what an upcycled food ingre- ingredient is, uh, which is, you know, which is, which is part of the process. Um, and now that there's an official definition and certification process pending, does this mean that um, there will be additional kind of policies and procedures that you're going to need to take it into account when making a product um, with inputs that are from food waste? I mean, we already have all of that in place. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, part of part of what, what, what went into this was the number of companies that were already doing this weighed in heavily on how, you know, how are we sourcing? What did that look like? How, you know, what's our verification, uh, et cetera. So I think, you know, I think for us, at least, that's not going to be a heavy lift. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for a new company, they might look at it and be like, oh, whoa. But at the same time... <laughs> you know, it's really, it's really verifying what you're doing and it'll be good for everyone. I mean, you know, rules are good. Rules, rules are good for breaking sometimes, but also rules are good for following, especially when it comes to, you know, food, food, food safety and, and really, you know, doing what you say you're doing, particularly with regard to the environment. Yeah. I mean, I personally am somebody who works in the, you know, private sector startup space who's like a big fan of regulation. And I, I feel like you don't find that combination very often, but yeah, right. I, I'm, I'm both of those, <laughs> both yeah. of those things. Um, what has the learning curve been in terms of your experience? You said at the top that you um, worked for a very long time in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. Um, how different has your experience been in this transition to the startup sector? Yeah, it's such an interesting question that I, you know, I do get asked a lot and I I think about a lot because, you know, my kids are all like, why didn't you start a business before? It's like going so well. Um, And, you know, 20 years ago when I entered the workforce, there was no such thing as a social impact business. You know, I mean, you were either like hardcore business 10x return or you were a nonprofit. Like there was not the combination. Um, And for me, you know, I just was interested in a much, you know, you know, interested in doing good for the world much more than I was interested in making money. But after many years in the nonprofit world and, you know, also sort of in the corporate nonprofit world, you know, I worked for big museums and and big organizations. you know, I just saw the 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 need for sustainability and, and fundraising, you know, is not a sustainable way to keep something going necessarily, you know, philanthropy, um, because you're just always dependent on, you know, on the largesse of, you know, of other people as opposed to it being, you know, as opposed to your sustainability being somewhat, you know, being transactional. And that is not a diss at all on nonprofits. I mean, I, you know, I'm a big fan of many nonprofits and and it's an important part of our society at all levels. But for, but, but what I brought to the business world was this intimate understanding of how to be lean, (laughs) how to raise money, Okay. How to build a program from the ground up that was going to last, whether the funding was there or not, you know, and that, that, those skills just, 
you know, created the conditions for success, really, I think. And, and also, you know, we, we are authentic. I mean, we come, both of us, you know, my business partner and I, my business partner spent much more time in the for-profit world. She was in banking for many years and she, and business development. Um, but we, you know, we both, we both believe and, and have built the business around, you know, a sustainable notion um, for the public good and a viable business plan so it didn't feel it doesn't feel that different from what i did before except that you know it's it's a cash transaction we're going to take a really quick commercial break right here um, to hear a word from our sponsors but we will be right back so stay tuned This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Cultivating environmentally sound, economically viable, and community-focused farms and food systems. PASA Sustainable Agriculture's annual conference is one of the largest gatherings of sustainable farmers, food system professionals, and changemakers in the nation. The 2021 virtual conference takes place January 19th to February 5th and features more than 90 sessions on topics that include soil health, climate change, crop production, livestock grazing, urban agriculture, community building, food justice, and much, much more. Don't miss keynote speaker Robin Wall Kimmerer, scientist and author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Learn more about PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2021 virtual conference and register online at pasafarming.org slash conference. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Anna Hammond, CEO of the new startup Matriarch Foods. In terms of funding, there's a lot of money focused on food and ag tech companies and Certainly a lot of companies go to great lengths to try to categorize themselves as such, like we have a website, so we're a food tech company. Um, And um, there's no doubt that your business model and the way you're making products is innovative and it's solving for major food systems issues in a very tangible way, correcting for inefficiencies in the supply chain. But has the fact has the fact that you're not representing new quote unquote technology been a barrier for you in the fundraising process so far? Yeah, I mean, we are seeking out funding. We're actually in a raise right now. Uh, it has not been a barrier. Um, you know, what we're doing makes sense. And it's been really successful so far. Uh, and also, you know, what we're doing is changing the way things are made very far upstream. So there's a systems change aspect to what we're doing that that people are also very interested in. And because, you know, hunger and health and the environment are all very, you know, very much in the public eye right now, you know, what we're doing also, you know, is very, is very attractive. Um, so, you know, <laughs> yes, are we looking, you know, are we looking for more investors? We certainly are. Um, but it has not, you know, what we're doing has not been a barrier in that way. Um, if, you know, if I were doing this 10 years ago, it'd be a totally different story, but you know, what we're doing now is incredibly timely. And, right. and also, you know, in the last year, the issues of hunger, the issues of health, 
and the issues of the environment, you know, you're, you're, you would be hard pressed to find any person, you know, in the United States, <laughs> Europe, Russia, China, who isn't thinking about that, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and so it's a global, it's a global issue. And we have, I believe, you know, a systems, a systems solution to a global problem. And we need, you know, we need many of those solutions, um, but we have a very, very clear one. Uh, yeah. So, so it's not hard to explain to anyone what we're doing and why, you know, why it's going to work and why it can get bigger and have greater impact. What about um, any challenges on the perception side when creating a product made from food waste? Do you mm-hmm. think that most consumers are receptive to this idea. I mean, I, I think probably certainly given the, the number of um, uh, organizations that are now involved with the Upcycled Food Association, it seems like. But I'm wondering if you've personally kind of come across any of that pushback. You know, we really haven't. Um, I think that that's partly, you know, most people who are making upcycled products are pretty good at explaining what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear when you show someone what the, you know, what the byproduct is that you're using, it's not garbage. Um, right. You know, it's vegetables. It looks like something from your kitchen. <laughs> you know, it's spent grain. It's very appealing looking. You know, just just the actual thing that we're working with is not disgusting. Um, so there's that. And I think that, it, you know, it's not hard to explain why putting that into landfill is bad for the environment and why making food out of it is good. Uh, I think if there's been any challenge, I think, you know, for us, we sometimes get, you know, sort of blowback about, you know, why are you, you know, making food out of garbage for poor people? That was my next question. And, you know, and that's, you know, that's one that just feel is, 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 is more, <laughs> it's, it's, again, it's, it's a simple, um, you know, it's a simple solve to, yeah. to, to, to explain, but it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very narrow perception to, to say that because, you know, really what everyone in the upcycled uh, food business is doing is making better use of what already exists to give more people access to different kinds of food and to maximize you know, the, the use of the natural resources we use to, you know, to grow our food and to, and to, and to transport our food. But mostly it's, it's very positive. Yeah. Plus you can also be like, I mean, you can go to Whole Foods and buy it <laughs> someday. Yeah. Hopefully, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's very quickly kind of entered the mainstream. Um, and also, you know, most people have a grandmother who wouldn't be throwing anything out in the kitchen and once you just kind of take it to that you know to that story yeah it's just very easy to understand you know no no there's no one who wants to waste things yeah you know so so I think it's sort of um there was a lot of concern early on that the the consumer would be disgusted by the idea but that has just not proven to be true 
Right, right. And in looking to the future, I'm wondering if you're planning on working with um, and incorporating animal protein food waste into your product development. You know, it's it, animal byproduct is really interesting. It's not something we're looking at right now. Um, we've been approached um, by by some companies who are you know dealing with bone, you know, meat bones and things like that. Could we do bone broth? Um, you know, maybe somewhere down the line. But right now. Right now we have our hands full with vegetables and I think we're going to, we're going to stay in that lane for a while. Um, okay. I would be remiss if I did not talk to you about packaging for a minute because yeah. it has become over the past year in my personal professional experience, like, or my person, my professional experience, like it was such a huge focus for me. So yeah. I'm wondering you currently pa- package and Tetra Pak for the consumer market, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, um, any, any other packaging that you use for different products that you have out there? Not right now. Um, we, you know, when we first started out, we were packaging in uh, plastic buckets mm-hmm. and uh, in showly bags, which are these kind of, you know, soft kind of metal-y looking bags um, for food service. And mm-hmm. we just, you know, we moved into Recart for all kinds of reasons, um, but especially for environmental reasons, because we could make a concentrate, it's a carton, it's recyclable, um, you know, it's, you know, you have to take it to a certain kind of facility and there's some, you know, some issues around that for sure, because those are mostly in urban environments, not so much rural, Um, but it's still, it's still the best product from a recycling point of view. Um, Packaging is fascinating. And uh, I was just, you know, we were just part of this Hudamaki circular economy program. Um, and there were a couple of companies, you know, develop, that were working on new packaging. One, you know, making packaging out of seaweed and another mm-hmm. making packaging out of, out of um, you know, wasted, wasted grain. Uh, and so I think there's, a, you know, there's a whole new world out there of packaging that's going to that's gonna blow up in a good way. Um, in the next, you know, in the next couple of years, it's not quite there yet. And certainly in food, it's not there. Um, I, you know, so, so right now for us, what we're using is sort of the best option. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and it's something we think about all the time. And we get asked about all the time, of course, because if you're making an environmentally sound product, you know, everyone wants it to be a hundred percent environmentally sound. You know, the right. challenge is that, you know, all the big food packaging companies are dealing with this right now. So, you know, Tetra, yes, Hudamaki, all of them really trying to, to find better ways to either use recycled, you know, recycled packaging or find new ways to recycle. Um, and then there's some interesting, you know, there are interesting projects happening around the recycling of packaging, but... You know, like Emico, you know, did this beautiful chair that they made, you know, in collaboration with Coca-Cola. You know, whatever we all may think of Coca-Cola, you know, they did put some money into this incredible project. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's a really interesting way to think about packaging is like second life use. Because, of course, with food, you know, you have to have a barrier. Um, so it's not as easy as just saying, oh, you know, make your packaging out of recycled paper or seaweed or something. Um, it's very, very complex, but you know, I, I, I've met some people working in that space who are just incredibly smart. And I know that, you know, one of those companies going to hit it, hit it big very soon. 
Yeah. I thought for of about glass for a minute, but then I realized, mm-hmm. um, I mean, because with packaging, it's always a trade-off, right? Is it right. going to be weight versus ease of recycling versus something else? But um, so it seems like for a constant, because it's a concentrate specifically, it's also much better served by Tetra Pak versus. Yeah, something. for sure. Um, I mean, you know, glass is an option. Cans are an option. Um, but, you know, every every kind of packaging has a challenge. Um, and I think that's, you know, yeah, that is definitely the takeaway. That's just the takeaway, you know, know, and (laughs) and it's like, what's, you know, what's the least bad food packaging option right now? Um, given the company's mission around reducing food waste, um, reducing food insecurity and, you know, increasing access to healthy, affordable foods, what would you like to see from the Biden administration? Any are there any policy developments um, that could support your work that you would like to see? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and let's also—I'm just going to call it the Biden-Harris administration yes, because I'm yes. so psyched about Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that the Biden-Harris administration will make it a priority to support healthy diets. Uh, and will do everything they can to make healthy, affordable food available to those who need it most. You know, so for starters, I'd like to see the administration restore standards um, for school food and increase the amount of federal dollars for school food budgets. And that would give food service directors the ability to purchase better quality food from a variety of vendors. Um, you know, healthy diets for all children in this country has got to be a top priority. And there's a reason I called this company Matriarch. You know, I have three sons and three grandchildren. <laughs> we are committed. We are committed to feeding all people, you know, yeah. but perhaps most urgently, you know, children, young people and our elders the healthy food they deserve. Um, but this is going to take a big commitment of funds. So currently yeah. the federal government spends you know, about $8 billion a year to feed three, 30 million children 180 days a year. And that needs to double, you know. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, and people always freak out like, oh, that's a huge number, $16 billion. But if you put it in perspective, when you understand that Americans spend $100 billion a year on fast food and $100 billion a year on diet aids, you know, and more, even more critically, $200 billion a year on diet-related illness, um, you know, I don't really want to get into a tax discussion here, but with a realignment of priorities, the math is really simple. Yeah. Um, you know, and how this would help make matriarch, we could make more, we could more readily compete against companies who are selling high sodium broth, you know, made from extracts at 0.5, you know, 0.5 cents an ounce against our one cent an ounce and, wow. you know, and, and be able to actually sell it into much, you know, into many more food service accounts. Um, so, you know, there, there are many, you know, there are many ways in which the administration can do a lot around food, around food security, around food systems. Um, there's some amazing organizations out there, you know, the good food purchasing program has some really great initiatives that could be scaled. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty stoked about what they can do. And also because Harris has, you know, has traditionally been a food systems supporter. Yeah. Well, it seemed like um, from the big economic um, kind of stimulus, COVID relief, all of, you know, everything package that was unveiled last week, there were some initial really good developments that hopefully, you know, Congress can 
readily pass. So yeah, and that's you know the readily pass is going to be the big yeah. <laughs> going to be the big question. Yeah. But, but you the, know, like, stabilizer just, democracy, and because um, <laughs> that's the thing that we have to talk right. about. <laughs> I mean, the one thing you know I, about food is that you know food is something we can all agree on. You know, and the health of our children and the health of our elders is something we can all agree on. No one wants their kids to be sick and no one wants their parents to be sick. No one wants to, you know, be spending time in the hospital. And so, you know, I just, I have to believe that, you know, this could be, a, you know, this could be a place for, you know, bipartisan cooperation and collaboration. It's like, we, this country needs to get needs to get around a community table and, you know, maybe food's the way to do it. Yeah. Um, okay. So last, most important question, where can we find your products? You know, if, if our listeners wanted to go get a carton of the concentrate. Yeah. Well, you know, I, a few months ago I would have said, well, you have to go, you'd have to go eat it at a, at a school, but now um, you can get it online at Hungry Harvest and next week, uh, we're launching out on imperfect foods. Yeah. Uh, and so those are two, you know, those are two online, online uh, ways to get the product. And, and you know, coming up in, in 2021, there will be many more. And so watch, watch our website uh, for new announcements. And, you know, you can follow us on all our social media channels, LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook uh, for new announcements around that. And if you're really stuck and you can't find some, reach out to me and I'll send you a card. (laughs) All right. That is wonderful. We're going to leave it there for today. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about your company. I'm so excited to watch it really grow over this next year. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Of course. Okay, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors, um, as well as to our show intern, Amber Chong, our show engineer, Jeet Paul, and show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.